This is Environmental Voices Rising, Women at the Mic, and I'm your host, Michael Crawford Zimring. Environmental Voices Rising is proud to amplify the voices of women environmental leaders who are bringing innovation and creativity to the challenges of climate change. This is a podcast about climate action and solutions, not doom and gloom. We are not planning on Mars as our next destination, because right here on planet Earth, there is a lot to be done. Women environmental leaders have been on the forefront for years. They know firsthand the effects of climate change, and they are committed to creating concrete solutions for a livable, sustainable, and equitable world for us all. We believe that media should be bringing you these stories with hope, inspiration, and an invitation to find your place in this endeavor that is changing the world. Please join us for today's conversation. Today, my guest is Sophie Galois who, after working in the climate sector for a while, concluded that climate communication is not working. Climate language is often complex and confusing in a way that leads to the disengagement with audiences. Thinking about this, Sophie realized she could utilize her background in marketing and come up with solutions to address the gap. So along with her co-founder, Lisa Woodward, they created the Climate Agency. Their mission is to help clients harness marketing strategies to get the right message out and reach an audience to stand out and scale up their projects. I am really delighted to have Sophie join me today and share how the Climate Agency is addressing climate solutions with communication. Sophie, welcome to Environmental Voices Rising. Michael, thank you so much. Delighted to be here and thank you for such a kind introduction. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of the Climate Agency, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your story because we all come to the environmental space differently. And you said you, in one of your articles, you said that you didn't have an aha moment, but it was a little by drip by drip, little by little. Tell us about that experience because I think actually that's the experience of a lot of people. Yes, I think, well, I'm pleased to hear that because I have felt a little isolated at times, but it, it's true that I didn't have a kind of, you know, I call it a Joanna Vark moment where you kind of hear, you know, the sky's opening and telling you go and do this. So it's, it wasn't like that. In fact, I spent uh, decades um, at, uh, you know, in leadership roles in the corporate sector. And um, that included flying around the world constantly and a really big carbon footprint and I never thought about it twice and little by little you know uh, I started working in NGOs UNICEF and started to hear and read more about climate and it's really the more I talk to climate scientists from my job on on other issues and the more they used words such as being terrified which scientists don't normally use and um, little by little yes you're right it's a drip drip and suddenly I found that I had um, energy for nothing else. And I also 
felt really persuaded that we should all bring what we've got to climate. You know, you don't need to be a climate expert. You're good at something, bring that to climate. You're good at connecting with people, great, do it for climate. So personally, you know, I've been a global marketing director, managing director, you know, and, and so on. So really in the world of marketing and communication at a global level for a very long time. And that's where my expertise and my connections are. And so, as you explained, the more I learned about climate, the more I realized that in terms of communication, it could do with a bit of expertise and more on that later, maybe. So the thing is, however you get here, however you get to engaging in climate action is welcome. Because as you said, just bring what you have. You don't need to be a climate scientist, but we do need all hands on deck because we need a lot of different ideas. This is a critical decade, and it appears that we don't have much time. There was even an article in the New York Times this morning about that. Speaking of ideas, you work with people who have a lot of ideas. You work with engineers and scientists who truly have innovative ideas like direct air capture, technology to remove CO2 from the air, reducing methane levels, These are big ideas, but they also use a lot of complex scientific language, and they need your help. Tell us how your organization works. How do you help them communicate, scale up, and get funding to get their message out? Right. Well, how we are. Yeah. So we are a nonprofit marketing consultancy. I thought it was important. I thought um, we're not here to make money. You know, we're here to just do it as accessible as possible. Because the fact is, the sector of what I call climate solutions, I don't know if they are solutions, but, you know, elements of solution, such as carbon removal and so on, there, there are a lot of climate tech startups. They're very small and very young. They're much smaller than they should be. There is a, on carbon removal, for example, a report that came out um, a few weeks ago that said, you know, we need to scale by a factor of 1,300 by 2050. So that just gives you an idea of the scale. So a lot of the organization I work with are small climate tech startups. You're talking about two, three founders, a small team. There may be five, 10, 12 people. They don't have huge budgets. So I need to be very accessible for them. People who work in climate solution, whether it's growing seaweed to absorb CO2, whether it's looking at direct air capture, whether it's looking at methane, there's lots of different approaches, tend to be scientists or engineers. Scientists and engineers, they have PhD from MIT, from Stanford, from all the best universities. And so they have a particular time of brain. They're really clever. But their way of communicating is to explain to you facts and push those facts at you, even though they are quite complicated, often using a jargon that's slightly head-scratching, numbers that are mind-nubbing. It's all very complicated. And the idea that you need to be relevant to the person you talk to, that there needs to be some sort of storytelling and emotion is something that's completely beyond them. So that's, you know, that's really where my challenge lies. I get it. If these engineers only know how to speak in facts and numbers and they don't know how to communicate a story, they're, they're going to need help. They're going to run into trouble actually trying to communicate to get to the people that they really want to get to. So I know you have like some unique tools and, and with workshops. So maybe an example would help us. Tell us about how you worked with this organization, the Power Trust, and how you were able to help them. 
Well, Power Trust is based in Vancouver, uh, so the North American organization. They're a startup. They're about 12, pe- 12, 15 people. But, you know, they, they got some really big clients and their idea now, the way they would, exp- I'm not even going to tell you how they would explain it to you, but basically they sell renewable energy certificates to big organizations. And Normally, those renewable energy certificates come from large renewable projects in America, such as a big dam in Colorado or something like this. Now, these guys have found a way of aggregating the energy produced by lots and lots of little solar panels in the global south, in India and Africa. So little solar panels that they put on schools, on farms, on hospitals, and then they find a way to aggregate all that energy package it together through blockchain, I'm not going to spare you the facts, but then sell it to a large organization who want to meet a net zero goal. So all this I've seen, you've seen, it's super complicated. And so firstly, they wanted to have a kind of a thought leadership approach to this. So we helped them write a white paper. So we had some specialists and what a really important and dense white paper. But what I wanted to do is do an executive summary that was one page long with a definition box explaining what all those words meant. And then I went further and I told them, you know, I'd really like to talk to the people you're targeting. And they're targeting the big sustainability and climate directors of big organizations in Silicon Valley, big American organizations. So I talked to a number of them. Uh, I can't mention one of them because it's Salesforce and they've announced that they were purchasing certificates for power trust or Salesforce and a couple of other really big, big Silicon Valley names. And I told those climate directors and they all told me the same thing. They like, please, could you ask them to speak in plain English? Because I understand what they mean, but I've got to sell, you know, what they do to people internally. And those people internally are very smart, but they don't have the time and they don't understand climate because they're working on their own projects. So it needs to be plain English, it needs to be concise, and it needs to make their life easier. Like, look, we're going to make you look good. It's not going to be risky. And, you know, so I was able to go back and say, look, this is what they want. They don't want you to impress them with all your jargon and technical abilities. They want you to tell them, we can make you look good, it's going to be safe, and this is how it's going to work. So we worked with a number of work, two workshops with the Power Trust team. We did these interviews and we came back to them with a creative approach. And that creative approach was small is powerful. Because these are words you can understand. You know, small is powerful, it's not too techy. And then you can and reach, build upon that. And the fact is, because it's small, you can install it everywhere quickly, cheaply. So, and you can install it in Africa and India where it has an even bigger impact, both socially and environmentally. So the fact it's scalable and flexible makes it very powerful quickly. So small is powerful in that context, catches the attention, and then you can elaborate and, and explain a little bit and trying to make it simpler and relevant. So, and we're building websites and communication material and trying to build visuals as well, because these people very often, you know, when you talk to scientists and engineers, how, you know, in terms of colors and typographies, this is not necessarily something that's going to excite them enormously. At the same time, it's really hard to visualize climate, to visualize renewable energy. And let's be honest. If you've seen a solar panel, you've seen them all. I mean, there's so much interest. So we've been working at finding ways to represent what they do that's graphically interesting, unique and appealing, looking at world maps maybe and world maps 
showing the global south to its true size. So, I mean, lots of different interesting visual questions, which I think they hadn't considered before. I think so. And also, I mean, I can see this on your website, how much you use the visual context to explain what you're doing. They were really receptive to that, or they were actually excited, to, I'm assuming. Yes, they're a lovely team. And they, they you know, we're, we're still working with them. They're a lovely team. They're doing really well. And they have been receptive. It is true to be said that not all clients are receptive. So, because they, they generally think, well, I'm explaining my complicated technology very well. Look at all my formulas. <laughs> I don't need any pretty <laughs> picture. <laughs> no, I'm being a tiny bit caricaturing, but not that much. And then sometimes I show them, for example, one of the things I really believe is important is if you look at a lot of climate websites, there's nobody in it. There's no people. It shows you forest, skies, clouds, whatever. There's nobody in it. How are people going to think it's relevant for them if they don't see themselves in the picture? And who are you going to trust? People trust people. They don't trust technology because if they don't have a PhD, they're not going to understand it. So it's about putting the human at the forefront as well which I believe is important visually as well as in the writing, in the copy they write. Exactly. This is what we need. Really simple, clear language, visuals, and the human connection. The visuals on your website are a really good example. There was another message that I did get from looking at your website and your organization. It appears to me that you are very optimistic. You believe in human ingenuity. And you find that with these scientists and engineers, they're very creative. They have large visions for solutions, but closing this communication gap is crucial. I really like what you're doing and working to get clear communication. And I think about the communication piece because in the media field, which is my next question, with the media climate communication that is also not really helpful, maybe an overload of jargon and disaster scenarios does not really engage the public. So maybe from your expertise and your experience, could you extract any principles? Would you have any advice for better communication overall on, on the climate? Well, Michael, it's a really good point. Most of the people I talk to in climate have told me, not everybody, but most of them have said, we do not have the time to communicate very broadly to the wider public. There is no time for that. It's, you know, talking, you know, you should do an ad campaign or an election campaign, you know, whatever, political campaign, whatever. It takes a lot of time and it takes resources, which the climate sector as a whole doesn't have. So they tend to focus their communication on key stakeholders. So those key stakeholders may be policymakers, whether in Washington or in the EU. They tend to be, you know, key influencers, big CEOs of corporation, big NGOs. So they tend to be key stakeholders. Not all that much energy is spent communicating to the broader public. And there isn't actually an NGO in charge of doing that, if you, if you like, you know, I mean, the Worldwide Fund and other NGOs communicate. Everybody communicates on climate change as part of communicating about wildlife or climate justice or whatever, but not about the, the, the topic itself. So I think a lot of the energy is towards key stakeholders and not very much has gone to the broader public. Which is a shame. I think, I think that we, if we want everybody on board and we want support, global support, we need to be able to communicate. I think you're right, because at the end of the day, we live in democracies and people are not going to accept increased prices on, you know, 
oil or whatever if they don't really have a full understanding. And it's funny because personally, around me, a lot of people tell me, but what is it going to mean for me? What is it going to mean in the UK, for example? What is it going to mean in France? What is it going to mean, you know, around me? And very often, I don't know what to say because a lot of the reports give a broad brush, global impression of what's going to happen, sea level rising, temperature, extreme weather, biodiversity loss. What is it going to mean in London? What is it going to mean in San Francisco? I wish, I kid you not, if I had, if I had, if I was a multimillionaire, I would actually <laughs> find a group of scientists to really be able to say, okay, here's a top 20 cities or, 20, you know, this is what's going to happen in the next 20 years for in each of those cities. And I think suddenly communication will be so much easier because that you will never be able to go to ski again. <laughs> you know, your city is going to be divided in two by floods. What, you know, whatever it is, I think it will make it more relevant and immediate. The scenario, whatever the scenario, right, yeah. So I think that makes it difficult. And I think you say media is not doing a great job. I think you're right. At the same time, and for their discharge, I, I do believe that climate change is probably the toughest thing for the human brain to get to grip with. I think at the climate agency, we do a lot. We, we work with um, behavioral psychologists who advise government and NGOs and so on. And behavioral psychology is really interesting to understand how the human brain works and what makes it act or not. And the human brain, in general, has been developed through evolution to, you know, escape the lion hidden behind the bush and find something to eat in the next two days. So basically, it's short-term, it's tangible, looking for tangible stuff, and it's looking for things that are immediately relevant to me, to oneself. So things that are remote, ultra-complex, abstract, broad brush, it, it, you know, it's very hard. It, it's very hard to communicate. Right, I know. I've read. I've read a lot of those psychological studies as well about behavior, and and the distance. You know, like the polar bear is up there in the North Pole. It's far away from me. Has nothing to do with my life. Exactly right. So the challenge may be, as you pointed out, how to explain the relevancy. What will What will this do for my life? okay, sea level rise, and then the streets are flooded, and then I can't get to the store, I can't go out of my house, something specific. So I, I like this idea that you have, if we could get people very specific scenarios, but I'm not sure that we can. It's, I'm curious if we could. And another way that this might work is with people's stories. If we had stories from people who, like, say, for example, the people for who, in with Power Trust, the stories of how having access to solar power actually changed their life. I think you're right that personal stories uh, are very important and building a little bit of emotion um, in the narrative is really, really important. It's a lot of work. And it's funny because I'm interested coming on your program that you know, you're focusing on women's voices. Within the climate tech sector, it's very much like the tech sector. It's overwhelmingly male, which... I hadn't actually noticed until recently, but it's overwhelmingly male, which is fine, of course. At the same time, it doesn't help in terms of emotional narrative, if you see what I mean. It's, it's, yes, exactly. I mean, I don't want to generalize and say women are full of you know, empathy, emotion, and storytelling, and men are full of facts and science. That's not the case. But there is culturally a certain 
predisposition or maybe, you know, we are more skilled sometimes. Anyway, the, the mindset that surrounds emotion and narrative skill set is, is, is not very present in the current climate tech environment. Uh, the current climate, you know, there's a, you have one guy in America who's really good, I think, called Tony Fadol. Fadel, I don't know how you pronounce his name. He worked, uh, he's a guy behind the iPod, the iPad. He worked at Apple for a long time and he's now a motivational speaker and uh, entrepreneur. And he really insists about the why. You have to explain why you get up in the morning, why you want to do this, not just what you do. And he explains it very well. And I saw him at a climate conference last week in Paris, at a deep tech conference in Paris. And um, he said, you have to stop trying to impress a super clever geek next to you. That's not the point. Climate should not be the preserve of super clever geeks, basically, whether male or female. <laughs> Good point. We want to hear from these super clever geeks, but we also want to hear from people on the ground who are working on community projects like clean water, which in my experience is where a lot of women and some men as well are working, but working on small community projects. People whose lives are already being affected by climate change and they have stories to tell. So I storytelling is probably not something that a scientist will get up on stage and start their presentation with. That probably doesn't go over, but maybe it should. Probably should, yes. And so should. It probably should. So we help people try and find a narrative, find an emotion, find their why to explain to although we mainly help them with the key people that are gonna help them scale because the focus is on speed and scale. You mentioned the coverage in the New York Times, the IPCC, which is the International Panel on Climate Change, which is a bunch of global scientists who are working, devoting their lives to, to this topic. They've just published a report yesterday. It's not great. You know, we're not in a fantastic position. So speed is of the essence. And this is why we really need storytelling to get people to act. Mm. And you do that. You're, you create, you have like short-term programs. Tell us a little bit more about how you, you, you create like a, is it a workshop kind of situation? Yes, I mean we do we do we do workshops and we do obviously consultancy based on our expertise. One other thing we do, which we're working on at the moment, is because we've been um, in the marketing sector for a long, long time, we have a lot of connections, and some of the top agencies we've worked with in the past on big brands with multi-million budgets are coming to us and are saying, you know, all our young creatives want to work on climate. They don't want to work on insurance. They don't want to work on sports trainer anymore. They want to work on climate. All the young creatives are like this in the advertising design you know, world. Absolutely. So can you please give us a climate something to work on pro bono? And I'm really finding a lot of that. And I'm sure you have it in the US as well. And it's a great opportunity. So one of the agencies that I'm working with at the moment has offered pro bono time and we're developing a campaign really about what I call cow burp, uh, methane. I mean, you may know that uh, methane is, uh, if you want to stop short-term climate change, methane is the thing because it's a very powerful and fast gas. It acts like a blowtorch to the atmosphere. And a big, big emitter of methane is actually cattle who burp methane, believe it or not, whether it's dairy cattle or meat cattle. So a lot of NGOs are saying, stop eating meat, stop drinking milk. And you're like, great. But exactly as the UN said yesterday, we're in the situation now where it's everything, everywhere, all at once. That's, that's the mantra. And so we're building a campaign to really mobilize the cattle and dairy industry to find solutions. I mean, 
And suddenly, I don't want to talk about tech. I don't want you to tell me if it's complicated or not complicated. We've put men on the moon and women soon. <laughs> we have, you know, we've done some amazing things. I'm sure we can find a way to deal with cattle burping. Just put enough resource and scientists and sort it out within the next five years. So that's what our campaign is, is uh, trying, to, trying to build. I do know this company called Blue Ocean Barns. They're in Hawaii in California, and they've developed a supplement to feed dairy cattle. And it does something to the digestive process that cuts the methane production by quite a large percentage. The supplement is 100% natural, and it comes from seaweed. And you can check them out. I think even since they are, they do work only with dairy cattle, and they have produced a lot of milk. Ben and, I think Ben & Jerry's is working with them, as well as Strauss Milk, which is up here in California. Well, do give me their name. Yeah, I'd love it. But you can see, if you look at the scientists, they're saying methane emissions need to be kept. I don't remember if it's 60% or 80%, but something dramatic by 2030. Now, 2030 is tomorrow. I mean, 2030, I'm going to be around work. You know, you like, <laughs> uh, like, by 2030, it needs to be more than Ben & Jerry ice cream. You know, it needs to be everywhere, all at once. <laughs> all at once. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And it's it's hard, but there's a French expression, which is to shake the coconut tree, which is you're trying to make things happen. You just give it a good shake. And communication can do that. That's what campaigning and communication does. Say, look, just, just, just do it. <laughs> there was something else I wanted to ask you about. It's in your mission statement, and I've never seen this in a mission statement before. And I'm going to read it because I want to get it right. You say, we aim to build a culture joining high performance with kindness and warmth. And I was so taken with that, I've never seen the word kindness in a mission statement. How did you come up with that? And how do you see kindness working? I'm pleased you picked up on that because, I mean, as it happened, the climate agency, we're three women, to be honest. We didn't aim to be, but there it is. You know, we're, we're three women with a senior corporate background and a specialization in climate. I don't know if it's got to do with that, actually. I mean, we've worked in high performing environment, very pressured. I mean, you know, I've worked really long hours with no time for the kids. It's been sometimes really tough and high performing. And I enjoy the performance. And I've worked in very kind environments in NGOs that could be performing or could not be performing, you know. And I think we, we all felt it would be great to be able to join both. And we also felt we're going to have to because working on climate, it's not, it can't get to you. I mean, I mean, I, I'm a very resilient person. I've, you know, I'm, I'm used to handling pressure, but I find it hard sometimes to think about pretty negative, bleak scenarios moving ahead, you know. And a lot of people around me in the world of climate, even people coming from high finance and, and so on, I see having time off due to mental health issues. And so we thought if, if we're going to keep our enthusiasm and our freshness, we're going to have to be kind to each other because we're working on a difficult subject here. Does that, does that make sense to you? <laughs> Absolutely. I am so glad that you're including kindness. We do need to be kind to ourselves and kind to each other if we're going to continue with this work. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about the Climate Agency? I guess I want to tell people to go over to your website. We'll put a link to your page on ours. But is there anything else? Well, I mean, it's great if people can follow us on LinkedIn, on Twitter if they want to. Give us some ideas, give us some thoughts, give us some connection and contacts. We're, you know, 
it's really interesting because we can't be, this is not about being competitive. I've been in a very competitive, you know, environment before, uh, entrepreneurial, and that's great. Now, again, we need everybody. So if you have, you know, if you have ideas, contact, you can use us in any way or you want to share some best practice, whatever. I mean, I think we are happy to talk to everyone at this stage. Lovely. Wonderful. So I, so I always like to ask my guests if there are other women or a woman that who inspire you or have inspired you or who inspire you now. You know, it's funny, because obviously I'd like to say a woman in climate and there aren't that many. There aren't that many. So I'm going to say Greta, but that everybody, I suppose all your guests say Greta, you know, and it's like, yeah. No, they don't. No. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm going to say two if I if if I'm okay if that's okay. I'm going to say Greta, and you know why? She gets on the nerves of a lot of people, particularly if you've passed a certain age. I think if you get over 38, you know, people tend to think, "What is this youngster, you know, talking, telling me off?" And you know, she can grate on people's nerves. At the same time, I was talking about Joan of Arc earlier on. I felt if Joan of Arc had, she probably she has an element of that. And she was right. She was right earlier than everyone. And she didn't say it in the way that was the most smooth and telling, but she said it and she stood out and she got the attention. So, and she was fearless. She was fearless. So really respect to her on that. Yes. And Joan of Arc was fearless as well. Yes. I mean, I just kind of imagined them in the same, you know, fearless, fearless women, girls, actually. Very brave. I'm going to say another one that I'm not sure you're as familiar with in the States. She's called, but check her out. She's called Christine Lagarde. And Christine Lagarde is a French, um, she's a president of the European Central Bank, so a big, big political finance figure. And what I love about her is she's a, she's a very high-powered woman working in a very difficult environment. She's always stayed very calm, very competent and together with it and I think kind and one day she people said how do you withstand all the pressure and she said I was in the national team for synchronized swimming as a youngster and so you learn that even if you're drowned if you even if you're drowning you keep smiling and I thought that was quite neat as well <laughs> lovely Sophie I want to thank you so much for joining me today and taking up the challenge of communication I really appreciate the work you're doing and wish you the best going forward Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us today. We invite you to follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at eVoices Rising. Share this podcast. Subscribe on our website, eVoicesRising.com. We are now a 501c3 and gratefully accept your donations. We have a library of resources for you on our website so that you can dig into environmental issues yourself. Catherine Hayhoe, environmental scientist, says, just start by doing something, anything, and then talk about it. Talk about how it matters. You can connect the dots with friends and family and make a difference. Stay tuned for more episodes. Until next time.